Hello on Dark listeners, it's your host, Kasha Patel. Today we're going to talk about a veterinarian in Uganda trying to help chimpanzees that get tangled up with poachers. Then we'll also talk to an astrophysicist who is a member of the Event Horizon Telescope team that produced the first photographic image of a black hole. But first... In late March and early April, you might have seen a flurry of surprising headlines claiming the music of dubstep artist Skrillex could repel mosquitoes. They're talking about this 2010 song and a paper in the journal Actotropica called The Electronic Song Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites Reduces Host Attack and Mating Success in the Dengue Vector Aedes aegypti. According to the metrics listed by the journal, over 60 news outlets and blogs covered the study. Even Skrillex responded to the coverage and tweeted, No more mosquitoes, man. But the media couldn't seem to agree about what the study actually said. BBC's headline read, Dubstep artist Skrillex could protect against mosquito bites. Vice wrote, If a bit of Skrillex can fend off virus-transmitting mosquitoes and keep people from getting infected with deadly diseases such as Zika and Dengue fever, then EDM could literally save lives around the world. But Forbes took an opposite stance, writing, Mosquitoes don't like Skrillex, but listening to his music isn't enough to keep them away. How did the same study produce widely different coverage? As a science reporter, I've always found it harder to accurately cover stories when there are barriers like confusing language in the study, hard-to-reach authors, and questions about how far along the work actually is. And of course, for many publications, there's a temptation to take a more clickbaity angle. When coverage goes wild, like in this Skrillex case, there are usually a few reasons like these behind it. And this one had many. So first, I wanted to ask the main author of the paper, Hamidi Jang, how he felt about the coverage. Jang is currently in the Cayman Islands working in the Mosquito Research and Control Unit. Do you think a lot of popular media outlets missed the point of your paper? Definitely. That is absolutely obvious. The purpose of our study was just to see whether it has behavioral effect on the mosquito. Basically, he and his team set up a series of cages where they unleashed hungry mosquitoes on a hamster and played the music at them. I have never known Skrillex before the study. So I choose it just because uh, it's noisy. It was perfectly what I wanted to check with the mosquitoes. He says the Skrillex mosquitoes also had a lot less sex, perhaps because the vibrations threw off the wing beat patterns that the mosquitoes used to sync up and mate. And our result on mating was very clear compared to the bite. So Jang was trying to analyze a really basic question about how sound affects these insects, a question that lots of other researchers are working on too. But to use it as a mosquito repellent at your backyard barbecue, like some media outlets suggested? Mm, no. I talked to Dr. Cameron Webb, who was not involved in the research. He's a mosquito researcher from New South Wales Health Pathology and the University of Sydney. He says to create a repellent, it needs to be tested in real-world situations. I guess the most obvious step from here would be 
trying to adapt this into the field and so going out into a um a real life situation and and hooking up your stereo to uh the picnic table and seeing if playing the music stopped mosquitoes uh coming to you might be um you know something that would be interesting to try because often what happens in the laboratory doesn't really translate to what happens out in the environment and this is particularly the case for mosquito repellent trials maybe that would be the next step that uh, would have been good to include in the study Webb says there's been misinformation about sound-based mosquito repellents for decades. People are buying these products because they are told it works, but it's not proven yet. But particularly this idea that, um, you know, you can carry around a little sound emitting device or something on your smartphone that releases some or, or emits some kind of frequency and protects you against mosquito bites. You know, for decades, there's been products trying to be sold like that. And there really is, is no good evidence to suggest that they provide protection. And Jang agrees with Webb that more testing would need to be done if his results were to lead to a mosquito repellent. My paper does not say that Skrillex is a repellent. At this stage, there has been no talk about whether we can use it operationally. But reading through his abstract, I can see where reporters got confused. Even though Jang told me, no, it's not a repellent, the abstract of the paper says, quote, the observation that such music can delay host attack, reduce blood feeding, and disrupt mating provides new avenues for the development of music-based personal protective and control measures against 80s-born diseases, end quote. And since this paper was behind a paywall, many reporters may have only had access to the abstract, and they couldn't easily discover the nuance of his argument. Especially since he chose not to talk with outlets that reached out to him for an interview either. These popular media outlets, they contacted you, but you did mm -hmm. not you did not talk to them. I never want to talk. I don't know what happened that you are I talked to you, but <laughs> I have never ever talked, so now there were some outlets that covered this study well, like Live Science. They included both major findings of the study right off the bat with no promise of a mosquito repellent. Forbes also did a good job of putting the research in perspective with commentary from an outside researcher. So in the end, some outlets got the study's results right, and some overly exaggerated the health implications. We know how to fix some of these problems. Give reporters enough time to actually report, including talking to outside experts. Make sure they have access to the full paper and the opportunity to clarify questions with the authors. Similarly, researchers, don't be afraid to talk to the media or general public about your research. We can't fix all these issues immediately, but maybe we can start on a smaller scale. And also, remember, if you want to chase off a mosquito, spray DEET, wear long sleeves, or use a net over your bed. Definitely don't count on Skrillex. Our next segment is about a veterinarian helping poachers in Uganda change their ways. This segment was reported by journalist Michelle Catanzaro in collaboration with journalist Marco Boscolo, photographer and videographer Gianluca Batista, and sound designer Miguel Ariada, along with support from a journalism grant from the European Journalism Center. Look for a photo essay that accompanies this story on our website. Let's take a listen. A bear trap snaps shut. A snare hidden in a hole covered by leaves goes off. 
an iron snare clamps shut. And again, but this time with a nylon snare. Right now we are in the middle of Budongo Central Forest Reserve, the biggest natural forest in Uganda, and it's also a habitat for more than 800 chimpanzees. This is Caroline Asimwe, a veterinarian and conservation coordinator at the Budongo Conservation Field Station. For, for the chimpanzees that uh, inhabit Budongo Central Forest Reserve, the biggest challenge we are seeing right now is uh, poaching. Asimwe must often run to free chimpanzees that have gotten tangled up in the traps and wires that poachers had set to catch other prey. Here she is in the middle of an intervention in 2018. I need this okay, thing out. out. Wait, Someone, Jacob, yes. no more saline, open, clean. We need to clean this wound no, very fast. Since 2011, wow, I've worked on how many chimps? Over 20. But shockingly, just December to now February, we've already rescued five. That's a very huge number. Asimwe works to heal chimps when they're injured, but she's also trying to help poachers change their ways. I'm out in the forest with Asimwe as she and six men are on patrol. Yes, we are in compartment N3 and uh, we are with the Echo Guards. They have uh, a methodology they use when they are surveying for the snares. I have seen it already. I've seen one already. I've seen one. There's another one, nylon. This is Satasan Ochokuro, an eco guard and part of the snare removal team at the Budongo Conservation Field Station. These supporters, they are wise. They can set sometimes 100 snares. And so they come and set some of the traps to get some of the animals that are edible to them. However, chimpanzees in Budongo Forest have been falling accidental victims to these traps. The snares are metal or nylon wires that snap on an animal's limb. Sometimes they are hidden in a hole covered with leaves. Poachers call this setting a landmine. And then there are the bear traps, or man traps, metallic jaws that crush animals' paws. When they are lucky, it just gets hold of the fingers and it loses a few fingers and then the animal survives. Sometimes, helping the chimpanzee get free of a snare is very difficult. Like in the case of baby chimp Kefa. Kefa, our infant got caught in a, in a snare and it caught it on the face, around the jaws. The problem is that Kefa always sticks close to his mother and sister. So for us to really intervene on Kefa, we need to put down at least three chimpanzees with our uh, sedatives. And that is a very huge risk we have to take. This happened last year and we haven't still gotten an opportunity. Budongo is under pressure. The human population has boomed around the forest, like everywhere else in Uganda. Refugees have come to escape the turmoil in the north of the country and in the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. 
other people arrived after oil and gas was discovered in the region. It all adds up to a high rate of deforestation for agriculture and logging. When there's an increased population and the land is not anyway increasing, the problem of poaching is bound to increase somehow. Around Budongo, the population is very, very poor. So most of the poachers are the first line, most at risk, the forest edge communities. I was a porter in my village. I was trained by my father. We have been doing it illegally because maybe I'm lacking money, no job, and then that one will hand me a quick money. That's Setason Ochokuro, the eco-guard introduced earlier. In fact, each of the six men that patrolled the forest with the Simwe were once her enemy. Budongo Conservation Field Station has been working with the local communities, especially the poachers. We convinced most of them to renounce poaching and they traded their traps for goats. And then we have also employed some of them. For example, here we have six of them who have now been trained to be eco guards. And their role is to move around the forest to look for these traps and remove them you use a criminal to get another criminal. Their strategy is to tackle poaching at its cause, poverty. They have found that providing a poacher with two goats is enough to convince him to leave illegal hunting. Since 2009, more than 150 poachers have passed through their program. However, it's unclear whether this will be enough. That approach has really helped a lot because now the number of snares has gone down. However, the Budongo forest is so big and uh, we have only six echo guards, so they cannot manage to patrol everywhere and the snares in other compartments are high. For me, the work that she's doing is critical and, and forms the, the sort of first and most important response to poaching is to really understand the landscape and the people in that landscape and understand the drivers and their needs, etc. This is Chris Galliers, the Africa region representative of the International Ranger Federation, which is not involved in Asimo's work. There's three different kinds of, of poaching. Um, the low-level one being that of a subsistence poacher, really just trying to put food on the table. Uh, the commercial poacher who's looking to sell any uh, product that is derived from the park uh, illegally, and then the political one where those proceeds generated from the acquisition of those products is actually sold off to benefit or drive political agendas. In the case of Asimwe, her um, park there is really seemingly dealing with just the, the, the subsistence poaching. I think the challenge is when you start getting the other kinds of poaching, particularly the, the commercial and political poaching levels, the ability to deal with them at a, at a grassroots level becomes very difficult. At a park level, it becomes very challenging. And unfortunately, that's where the, the ability to deal with it sort of is, goes beyond that of a park manager or conservation manager.
out on patrol, the eco guard hears chimps calls in the distance. The team spots Kefa, the infant with the snare caught in its face, but there's nothing they can do for him right now. Other chimps have been luckier than Kefa. I remember we had uh, a chimpanzee in Ngogo called Garrett, a big male, but he couldn't socialize because when he was young, he got a nylon snare on his hand. The hand would, had started stinking. It was smelling so bad that no other animal wanted to be near him. After 15 years, when we removed the nylon from Gallet, within one week, he was seen grooming others and others grooming him. When I save an animal that is caught in a trap, I feel so happy and relieved to see that I'm able to give this life another chance. Chimpanzees are endangered species, so all our efforts are aimed at protecting this chimpanzee so that also the future generation can come and find this chimpanzee still living. This is our closest cousin. We need to protect it rather than children hearing stories. There used to be an animal that looked like human beings. This month, our in-depth interview is with Andrew Shale, an astrophysicist at Harvard University who's part of the monumental effort to give us our first picture of a black hole. Leading us in that conversation is Seth Manukin, a journalist, author, and director of MIT's graduate program in science writing. Take it away, Seth. It is my absolute pleasure today to welcome Andrew Shale to the Undark podcast. Andrew is an astrophysicist and a graduate student in the physics department at Harvard University. He is also a member of the Event Horizon Telescope team that produced the first photographic image of a black hole. Uh, Andrew, welcome to Undark. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start out just asking you a little bit about this work. I know, obviously, that this was an effort that took many years. Can you can you give us a little bit of a sense of both the scope of the project and the number of people that were involved? Yeah, so this has been a goal for well over a decade. People have been doing these experiments to try to get more and more information about approaching the event horizon of the nearest supermassive black holes. And so for yeah, more than a decade, people have known that these two supermassive black holes, one in the center of our own galaxy and one in the galaxy M87, which is the one we took a picture of, are just big enough to be able to, to image. And so people have been putting together these networks of, of millimeter radio telescopes in these very long baseline interferometry arrays in order to take these pictures. And this has been started out with small groups, small teams, uh, primarily in here in Europe, over a decade ago, trying to, to make progress toward this goal. And then over the last sort of five years, over the course of my PhD, it's coalesced into this big global collaboration where all the different teams across the world are working together. And we have more than 200 people overall joining forces in order to 
put together all the telescopes we can in order to make the sharpest image that we can. I know in some fields of science, having sort of massive collaborations are more or less common. How common is this within astrophysics? Is it unusual to have this number of researchers from this number of institutions all sort of working together towards one goal? Well, I think it's not uncommon to have very large collaborations in astrophysics. I think it's becoming more and more the norm. But I think in terms of radio astronomy and very long base interferometry in particular, the model is usually you have some telescope that may have been built as part of a large collaboration or a consortium of countries. And then it's smaller groups of a few researchers or a local group at a university will apply for time on that telescope and analyze the data themselves. It's really new, I think, for us at least, the people participating in this project to bring all these people together to build our own telescope for a specific purpose to image these event horizons. And we're bringing together also people, I think, from all stages of astrophysics, all different types of astrophysics. We have theorists, we have people who are doing simulations, we have people building hardware to make these telescopes work as part of the network. We have people designing computer algorithms to, to image the data. And so it's really a large cross-section of people. I think that is pretty unusual. Right, right. And can you describe exactly what your role was? I'm guessing that with 200 different people involved, there was both some overlap and also people working on very, very specific issues. So, so what were you working on? One of the things I do is simulations of black hole accretion flows. So what we do is we do these large supercomputer simulations where we put matter around a black hole and we watch it fall in and we try to predict what it will look like to our telescope. So that's been about half of my PhD. And that's a large group, huge assemblage of people has, has been brought together for, for this project, which is very exciting because typically people tend to work on their own and not compare their models very much, except you know with dueling papers. So now we're really making it more collaborative. And then the other thing I do is to design and build imaging software, which is sort of, it seems very different. It's more in the data analysis sphere than in the theory sphere. But I see them as really linked because it's sort of how you know, how you're able to test your predictions from simulations is you have to put them into the imaging and see how well the event horizon telescope can test it by producing an image. And so that's that's the second half of what I do. I know, obviously, not just on a collaboration of this size, but really any science that's done these days is not done by one person or even one or two people. It's it's a collaboration between principal investigators and grad students and postdocs and oftentimes multiple labs. In this case, there was someone who ended up getting a fair amount of attention at the outset Katie Bowman. Katie, as almost every scientist I know, was very careful when she was interviewed to stress that this was not her project, that she was one part of a collaboration. But the news media often looks for someone to sort of serve as the face of something. One of the things that was unusual about that was that for so long, not just in astrophysics, but in science in general, women have both been underrepresented and in many cases have not gotten credit when they deserved credit. So I think a lot of people were happy to see that. Can you talk about any of that or some of those reactions? Yeah, so this is a, you know, it's a big complex issue, as I think you pointed out. And I don't want, first of all, I don't want to speak for Katie, but I do know that she very much views this, like we all do, as a huge team exercise and a collaborative project. That said, I think it's true that there aren't, especially in radio astronomy, there aren't that many women involved. I think on our project, we are very lucky to have 
many, especially early career young scientists who are women who, who have participated an enormous amount. Katie is one of them. And she occupies, I think, a particularly special role in that she came to our collaboration from computer vision, so from computer science. And she, I think, brought in a whole new set of ideas and approaches to these problems that we hadn't considered before coming from astronomy and that really showed the best of the collaboration and that we were able to you know, work together and incorporate these new ideas to apply the astronomical principles and ideas that we had to, to sort of bridge this communication gap and I think make our ultimate imaging much stronger. I think so she really is definitely one of the key contributors to the project in that sense. I think also she would be the first to say that that was a collaborative endeavor where she was one of the leaders for sure, but we were always working all together. So then, and this surprised me, although in retrospect, I guess it shouldn't have surprised me. It didn't take very long for some corners of the internet to start saying that Katie was essentially only getting attention because she was a woman, actually was not the person who deserved attention. And at least in a couple of cases, there were commenters, people on Twitter, people on Reddit, who were saying, hang on, this guy Andrew did 90% of the work. I'm not sure exactly where they got that figure, but uh, but but that's what they were saying. And then said, oh, of course, you know, there's no way that anyone would let a white man get the attention here. That's why they put her forward. My first question is, how did you first learn that this was this sort of post-factual narrative that was starting to appear in, in different corners of the online universe? I don't, for example, have a Reddit account, which is where I think where a lot of this started. Yeah, neither um, neither do I. I think that's very healthy for, for both yeah. of us. <laughs> um, so I was not immediately aware of this. I sort of started noticing my followers on Twitter creeping up. I had, for the past two years, used Twitter mostly as a chance to follow other people, scientists, politics, everything, and not really putting myself out there. And so I think I had 30 or something followers. And I was starting noticing some people starting to follow me, who, you know, had Pepe the Frog avatars and all this stuff. And they were making comments that I was like, wait, hold on. And then a friend of mine sort of forwarded me this Reddit post, which apparently made it to the front page of Reddit on one of the days after the announcement, which said basically, yeah, that according to some stat they had pulled from this code repository, I had done 90% of the work or something, and that therefore this whole media um, focus on Katie was not at proportional to what she had done or that she was being, you know, just put in there as a symbol, which is incredibly not a right interpretation of the facts of the code or you know, it has basically no no basis in fact. It struck me that whoever whoever wrote that post did not know a lot about either science or coding. Uh, right. Because the idea in any collaboration that you'd have one person who either who wrote, you know, 90 percent of the code or I think they said wrote 850,000 lines of code <laughs> or that even after a huge collaboration, anyone would have any idea how who wrote what pieces, what lines of, right. of, of a huge program is just. Yes. I mean, so there are many things here. Right. So one of the things that this code that they were looking at was only one of the particular libraries of code that we use, one of the great strengths of our collaboration and thinks one of the things that Katie brought to us was this sort of rigorous way of looking at imaging so that we really wanted to test multiple different software libraries against each other and to make sure that everything was giving us the same answer before we could be really confident in it. So 
that particular library was only one of many software packages we used. And then it was true that I was the one who originally sort of created that library in the first place for a paper I wrote. It has been a huge collaboration effort between everyone here. Katie has been one of definitely the huge leaders on it. And we always write code together. We sit in the room and, and code together. We work on projects. And yeah, so it's even if the, those numbers were true, which they're not really a reflection of how, how many lines any individual person put in there, it wouldn't be true to say that they reflect anything about the underlying work. Right. Um, and then I think the third thing is that, yeah, those numbers include things like model files of, you know, just data that was uploaded. They probably include things like me uploading the entire code multiple times, which you're not supposed to do. <laughs> I probably did because I'm not, not a very trained software developer. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's clearly people went and found a number to support a narrative they were looking for, as opposed to really trying to understand what the collaborative nature of this project was. And so I know you then went out and on Twitter, and this must have been a little bit surreal as someone who mainly uses Twitter to consume information as opposed to authoring tweets. Yeah. You kind of tried to put a corrective out there and said, Thank you for the congratulations. However, I also just want to make clear to anyone who's looking to me to show that Katie doesn't deserve credit, that you're looking in absolutely the wrong place. And and you laid out how this is a collaboration. What was the reaction to that when you wrote that? When I saw these people coming into to my Twitter with all these very sexist comments about Katie and promoting me as their champion for this idea that they had about... I guess, white men being underrepresented in science or something. Um, <laughs> I just, you know, originally, I guess everyone, when I was talking to people around here, was hoping this was a very small number of people and that it wasn't making a big impact. But then as we started to see it more come in, I felt like we had to say something because at the very least, they were using my name and my face and to promote this narrative. And so I just wanted to basically make these people stop following me because I didn't want to to have this audience. And I also wanted to set the record straight for, for those people on Reddit, like I said, platform I'm not on, um, who were using me in this way. And I did not expect it to like gain any particular traction or anything or to spread sort of beyond. I was just hoping it would address this community of people debating this topic and then um, and go away. You went from, you said, you know, having somewhere under 100 Twitter followers to, to now having something like 36,000. I was wondering if that has made you think about your own place within science or your own role within the scientific community in a different way at all. Well, I think it has changed a little bit how I approach it. I'm definitely more careful now. I think I do want to use this opportunity to, to promote the issues that I care about related to science and all the amazing science that the HT is doing, that astronomy is doing in general. But then also, yeah, the representation of, of women and, and queer people in science in particular. In some ways, it was a little bit ironic that you were chosen to be a, a representative of how white men, this horribly oppressed minority, um, was not getting the credit it deserved because you also are very public and outspoken about being a member of the LGBTQ astrophysics community and uh, a member of a, of a community that also really needs more representation, not just in astrophysics, but throughout science. Yeah, for me, what I've become increasingly aware of over the last few years is yeah, how much power 
we have as even me as a senior graduate student at this point have in sort of setting the tone and the community standards and the, the, the way that people act in science that can determine how people well, who, what, what people end up in, in science and what people end up contributing to science. I don't think I had internalized that when I was a, a young high school student or a young um, college student, but I, mean, I remember being in high school and I think part of this might have just have been sort of a rebellious nature because my parents were scientists and I felt like I didn't want to be a scientist, but I think there was also a part of me that was saying, oh, like science isn't the place for you because you're coming to realize that, that you're gay and you should go and become a historian, which is something I also really wanted to do. And then it was getting to go to a wonderful, inclusive college where I just remember, for example, my my physics advisor was like probably the first person I had have ever had ever met in science who I thought he was queer before I realized he was actually straight. Like he just had a huge rainbow flag on his wall and the atmosphere was there was totally different than what I had ever seen in science growing up. I didn't internalize at the time, I think, how much just being in that atmosphere encouraged me to to keep pursuing this and how much, in the inverse case, not having that example might have pushed me away from something that I ended up loving. And so I just realized how much power we have and that we need to be conscious of it in setting this example in all these subtle ways. So that's something I've been thinking about a lot more and been trying to, to model. So I think in the first couple of years I was here, just because the there's sort of assumption, I think, in this community that people are by default straight and it was easy for me and a privilege that I had in order to not necessarily bring my whole queer self to work every day. I think as I've thought about what that kind of representation would have meant for me coming into the field, as I've seen even younger graduate students than me, as even in my group, some amazing young grad students be more outspoken and, and more out at, at work. And, and I've also, as I've advised undergrads, I've uh, sort of a resident tutor at one of the dorms at Harvard where I, I work with undergrads and I work with them as a LGBTQ life advisor in a, in a residential setting. That has really put into focus for me how important it is to be visible because I think there are a lot of amazing people who could contribute to astrophysics or physics and might just not decide to join this field because as in all across science, because they don't see people like them in these roles. There is an assumption of a default white man and it was easy for the people on reddit to to slot me into that assumption and be easy for for other people not knowing about me to slot that into the assumption as well in a way it seemed like in a sort of best case scenario by trying to take attention away from from katie what actually happened is that both women and the queer community who are two communities that certainly could use role models all across science and in astrophysics. There were these now newly visible and public people who were doing incredible work, enthusiastic about their fields. So in some ways, what could have been sort of a nasty incident turned into something where we're now we're having discussions about how we need to be more inclusive in, in all areas of science. Yeah, I think that's definitely the the most positive thing to come out of all this. And I think, again, not to speak too much for Katie, but both of us, I think, have been really surprised at just how supportive 99.9% of all the contact we've gotten has been. And yeah, I don't think it's, speaking only for myself here, that it's ever a role I imagined myself playing when I was struggling, you know, 10 years ago between wanting to be a scientist and, and 
coming to terms with the fact that I was gay and to see that sort of reflected into the idea that I could, that, that that could be assigned to other people who are queer, that, that this community is one where you can be out and you can be yourself and you can make huge contributions and you can be respected for those contributions. That's something that does really make me happy. And I hope that this experience does, does reach people that way. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, or maybe just highlight, was the Astronomy and Astrophysics Outlist, yeah. which is an, an online list of LGBTQIA plus scientists working in astronomy and astrophysics. Can you talk a little bit about that and and what role that serves? It's basically a an online registry where you can sort of publicly declare to the community and to to the world, I guess, that, that you are a member of the astrophysics community and that you are you are out or that you're an ally of those who are out. And for me that even before all of this started a few weeks ago, since I put my name on that list, I guess a couple of years ago now, has been just an entry into this whole community that you might not expect as one one person existing at one institution you might have one or two people you know as out queer scientists around you, but when you're you put your name on this list, um, so you get emails from people all around the world. I've gotten emails from people interested in science as undergrads, asking about what it means to be a queer scientist in graduate school. And so I think that is just an incredible resource, not only for for me. Just looking at the whole list was a wonderful realization to realize that you know there are people who are queer and out in all these different fields of astronomy even in ones that you might not you know ones that are more traditionally male dominated or more traditionally straight-laced fields but then also to think about yeah if, if you're coming in as a high school student or as an undergrad and you you know we're just googling like what is can you be lgbtq in science like what does it mean just to see this and to know that there was not only this list of you know hundreds of out people but then the list of many many more hundreds of people of allies who publicly have supported us, I think is, is an incredible thing. And I'm, it's one of the things I'm really proud about the astrophysics community for putting it together. And so it's a wonderful thing that we have. Andrew Shale, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you also for doing this in incredible work and also helping to communicate this work to the public and showing the scientific community uh, and, and the world at large that astrophysics and, and astronomy uh, is a, a welcoming place, regardless of what your gender or, or background or sexual orientation is. I know that you are literally days away from defending your thesis. Yep. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Good luck. And I hope we get a chance to talk to you again in the future. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, that's all on Dark Listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. We're produced by Lydia Chain. Music is by the Undark team. And I'm your host, Kasha Patel. 